You may be seated. If you would, bow with me in prayer, and then we'll, we're going to open to Philippians 2 together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, this beautiful weather. We thank you for this place that you've provided. I thank you for each one that you have brought together here as your body. And uh, we thank you that we have this time and this place set aside that we can gather together in your name to sing your praises, to celebrate uh, just this wonderful season. We pray that you would help to focus our hearts and our minds and just calm us in the midst of a busy season and just to focus clearly on you and who you are and what you've done and what it means for us. We pray that you would just help us to see uh, all that we do this week in light of that. We pray that as we open your word that you would lead and guide, you would teach us, uh, you promised to give us the gift of your Holy Spirit and moving in this place. We pray that you would do just that, that you would move freely in this place, that you would teach us, that you would lead us, you would guide us, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word, that you would apply it to us and that we would leave here having seen you more clearly. We thank you, thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, it doesn't take much to, to look around right now at our world and see uh, it's a mess uh, in a whole lot of ways. Uh, you can turn on the news, you can turn on the TV, you can turn on whatever. Uh, I, I get most uh, probably frustrated when I see uh, the arguments on social media uh, or my Facebook or the things that are there and friends that I know, friends of mine that are friends that maybe don't know each other are arguing over different things. And it's, it's just depressing at, at different times. I think even right now in our country and right where we are, there's a lot of issues that people seem to be very divided on. Uh, and then you add into it that we're now heading into an election cycle and all that goes with that. And it just seems to pile up. And people seem to be very, very ugly to one another in the way that they talk about things and the way they go about it. And so when I look online or I read those things, it's just depressing. It's frustrating. It's kind of hard to take at different times. But as I was thinking about it this week, uh, one of the things that just kind of hit me with what we're going to be looking at in Philippians 2 is just the idea that there's very, very little humility, very little humility in the discourse and what's going on right now. Uh, the idea that what it calls us to here that we're going to look at in just a minute of counting others uh, more important than ourselves, humbling ourselves, listening to people, loving them, even when we disagree, those kind of things. And you just don't see that today. It's a mess. And it's a mess all around us. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Philippians 2 and we're going to think about this idea of the humility of our Savior, the humility of Jesus and what he's done for us and what that means. But I want you to have in your mind with what's going on in the world and the way people interact and the way we can get caught up in those things. This has a very poignant lesson for all of us. The application here of what it calls us to in our world. We are called to be salt and light in the world. We're called to show a different way. We're, show, we're called to glorify who God is and what he looks like. And when you look around with what's going on in the world, a lot of times that's not the case. Uh, when I read my feed on Facebook or I see those things, some of the ugliest things I see being said are by people I know to be Christians. And it's sad to me that this picture of what he calls us to here, that oftentimes we're falling woefully short of that. And so let us remember that this has very real world application to where we are and what's going on in our world. This is not just some idea to think on and go, oh, that's neat and that's great and then move on. But it's called to change us. God's word changes us. God creates through his word and he recreates through his word. And so what we're going to look at and what we're going to look at what Paul tells us about and calls us to and points us to in Jesus is in very much direct contradiction to the way our world works. 
Right? When Jesus came and said, the kingdom of heaven is here and it's now near to you and I'm bringing this, it was so contrary to what everyone thought. It's because our world's upside down in a lot of ways and Jesus comes to show us what it looks like right side up and it seems the exact opposite of everything that's going on in so many ways. And so I want us to think about that, but I want us also to realize that when we read and when we come to God's word, when we're looking at this, this is not just an intellectual exercise. It's meant to change us. God changes us through his word. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says. If you've ever heard Eugene Peterson, he's a wonderful pastor, well uh, into his late 80s, brilliant man, a lot of wisdom. But listen to what Eugene Peterson says. There's no word of God that God, God does not intend to be lived by us. All words are capable of being incarnated because all words originated in the word made flesh. For every word of God revealed and read in the Bible is there to be conceived and born in us. Christ, the word made flesh, made flesh in our flesh. We're to live out the truth of who God is. We're to glorify him in the way we live. So please don't let this be an intellectual exercise that we go, oh yeah, that's a great thought and then move on. He tells us, God tells us, he's calling us, conforming us to his image, that we can be salt and light in this world. And so as we look at this huge, huge truth in Philippians 2, don't let it just be that. Don't let it just be a nice thought that we think about for a few minutes and then we leave. And so as we look at Philippians 2, this is the way I want us to look at it. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11 here today. We've been doing a short series the last couple of weeks, really just trying to focus in on the incarnation. That is Jesus coming in the flesh, what we celebrate at Christmas, hopefully helping to recenter our holiday and the way we celebrate Christmas, but also to ramp up our expectation of what it means that Jesus has come to us. And so we're going to do that by looking at Philippians 2 today. And the first thing I want us to consider is just the humility of Jesus in the incarnation. What does it mean? What did he give up? What is that picture that Paul presents for us here in Philippians chapter 2? And then the second thing is how does that affect us or change us? Because he tells us it should change us. He says that very clearly here. And then lastly, what does it look like when we begin to live that out? Right? So let's consider the humility of Christ, how that affects or changes us, and then how we live that out. And so let's just begin with the humility of Jesus. And we're going to start right in verse 5. So Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so I want you just to consider for a moment what that tells us about the humility of Christ. And there's a very, very important part there in verse five that if we get wrong, we'll miss the whole thing. And so it's important that we understand exactly what this is saying. So verse 5 tells us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I want you to center in on that idea of he was in the form of God and what that means. If we get that wrong, we can get into some big heresies that the church has rejected for all its history. There are some who would say the form that Jesus is, is fully God and that God takes different forms at different times. Sometimes he shows up as father, sometimes he shows up as son, and sometimes he shows up as the Holy Spirit. One God, but just in different forms. That's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that all three are separate and unique and distinct, but they're all fully God and they're all fully one. Now that's a big idea 
and it's hard to get our head around. But if we turn into this picture that Jesus is just a form taking on a certain form and we take our English word and we push it too far, we miss it. What Paul's original audience would have understand in the word that he uses, the connotation that's there that we might miss in our English is he's really talking about that Jesus is the very essence of God. That's what the word means, essence, that he is fully and completely God. It's not a statement of appearance, but it's the strongest term possible to say that Jesus is God. And so when we think about that and we start to look at that, that picture that he's telling us, the unique and identical qualities that make God God are there fully in Jesus. So Jesus is God. We get this idea over and over in the New Testament. It's not unique to Philippians 2. We see this repeated in a lot of different ways. If you've been with us this last year, we've looked at two of them in depth. One being in Hebrews 1. We looked at that just a few months ago as we worked our way through Hebrews. It tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the very nature of God. That when we see Jesus, we are seeing who God is exactly and perfectly. Or we looked at Colossians 1 back at the beginning of last year. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God who holds all things together. And so simply put, Jesus is God. When you see him, you are seeing God in his fullness uh, and perfectly displayed before us. Jesus is God. It's what the Bible teaches over and over. And it's no wonder that the Bible teaches it over and over because Jesus himself taught it over and over. Jesus said it on many different occasions. Uh, I think of what immediately comes to mind is John chapter 14. The night before Jesus would be crucified in the upper room as he teaches his disciples. And Philip says to him, Father, show, show us the Father. They ask Jesus, show us the Father. And I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus says, how can you ask that? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He just tells them, you're looking at it. I am God. That's what he's saying. And he said it in multiple different times and in different ways. Before Abraham was, I am. He made these statements over and over and he taught it very clearly. Now the objection sometimes today will come, and maybe you've heard this, maybe you hold this, maybe you know someone that does. Uh, Sometimes the objection will come that Jesus didn't actually teach he was God. That his followers got so taken with him that he was such a great teacher, he was such a loving man, He was such a wonderful example that they started to attribute things to him that he never claimed to be. That's a very modern objection today. People will say that. They'll say, well, Jesus wasn't actually God. That was just his followers that came up with that. And over time, they embellished, and then they started to add to it, and then they started to say things like, well, he walked on water, and he raised people from the dead, and they started to add to it. And that's a very common uh, attack on Christianity today. But I'm going to tell you why that is absolutely false. We can verify that that's not true. Now, you can still debate over whether Jesus was God, but it's not true. It's absolutely not true that Jesus didn't teach that. He did teach that. And when you read this passage, it helps tell us exactly why. What we know for certain is Philippians was written between about 20 and 30 years after Jesus. It's one of the earliest letters. And what you see in this letter is Paul's writing to the early church, those people that have become believers that are seeking now to follow Christ, he is talking very clearly about how Jesus is God. He's saying that 20 years after the fact. 
There's no possible way that these things could have been embellished and grown over many, many years that his followers added to it because they were all still alive. It was still going on. It was within one generation that they are worshiping Jesus as God. Add to that, almost all scholars now believe that verses 6 through 11, that Paul's actually quoting something else. That he's quoting either a hymn or a creed that the church knew. Right? So it's not even that he's just telling them this 20 years after the fact. He's quoting something that's been said and rehearsed and said over and over again in the early church about Jesus' divinity that they would have all known what he was talking about. And so what it tells us is it actually predates even this letter that they were worshiping Jesus as God. Right there from the very beginning, the church has always taught and has always believed and always held, and it's because Jesus taught it. I would submit to you it's because he raised from the dead and proved it that he is God. And that's the picture that's here, that Jesus is God, the very essence. And he says that's who he is. Eternal creator, complete unity with the Father from all eternity. Always existed. Nothing that was made was made without him, John 1 tells us. And that's the picture that you have here. And if we miss that, we miss the uh, immensity of what it's saying in verses 6 and 7. And so we have to start there that Jesus is the very essence of God. So look at what it says right after that, though, in verse 6 and 7. Who, though he was in the form of God... Did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so we have to, again, be very careful in what this actually teaches and what it says. It's not that Jesus gave up his divinity, but he took on humanity fully. God's divinity and humanity came together perfectly in Jesus. And so he limited himself or he came in, he willfully submitted to become a, a human man to walk on this earth, to be born as a baby. To be born as a baby in the middle of nowhere, in poverty. The God creator of the universe would humble himself in this way. That's the picture that's here in verses 6 and 7. And when we get to the magnitude of what that means, that the creator of God that holds all things into existence by the power of his word would humble himself and come into his creation... There are no words. We are getting to the point that's beyond our comprehension. And so we struggle for analogies to make sense out of that. C.S. Lewis famously once said that if you want to get the idea of the incarnation, imagine yourself becoming a slug or a crab. That starts to get at it a little bit. But it's inadequate. It's not even really close. But that helps us at least to think about it a little bit. I think I've used this example before, but it helps me to think about it whenever I watch. Uh, have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? Anybody ever seen that show on television? Some CEO or president of a company will then go undercover and work in their own company. And I haven't seen the show in a while. It's probably been a couple of years since I watched it. But I remember watching an episode where a guy who owned a great big huge hotel chain, multi multi millionaire had built the entire business from the ground up. And he humbles himself and he goes to work in his own company and he, uh, he puts himself under people who work in his company and he starts becoming a maid. He cleans the rooms in his own hotel to see kind of how it works and what it looks like. And that starts to get at the idea a little bit. Right? The one who owns this whole company would willfully submit themselves to that and begin to work in that way. Both of those are inadequate 
but it starts to at least help us think about it a little bit. That the creator of the universe would be born into the poverty in the Middle East. I don't know if you've considered an immigrant that doesn't have a place to go as we celebrate Christmas. There's Jesus, and that's who and what he does. The picture that's there. But it doesn't stop there. Look at what it says in verse 8. He is born in the likeness of men. In end of verse 7, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only does he come in and grow up and live this life perfectly, showing us what it looks like, perfect humility, perfect servanthood, perfect love in the way he interacts with everyone. He comes to the end of his life and he willfully lays his life down, being crucified by his own creation being spit on and tortured and mocked and nailed to a cross. We can't even begin to understand. C.S. Lewis wrote the book uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the whole series, if you've ever seen that. They made some movies from it years ago, not too long ago, within the last 10 years or so. And in the first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's an incredible scene where Aslan, the picture of Jesus, the lion who who roams through the forest, who's king of the forest. And he comes and he lays his life down as a sacrifice. And they did it so marvelously in the movie, what Lewis wrote and what he kind of fleshed out, you see played out before you in this movie. And if you've ever seen the movie, the lion comes to lay his life down. And as he does, he comes and lays his life down. And there's all these smaller creatures and animals that are going to tie him up. And then the whole time you're watching it, you're going, he could roar at any second and wipe every single one of them out, but he doesn't. He just lays there. He submits to it and he lays down and he allows them to kill him. It's a very powerful scene in the movie. And what struck me watching that movie, I remember watching it with my kids and how gloriously it shows this picture that he was willfully laying his life down. At any moment he could have stopped it, but he doesn't. And that's what Paul's telling us here that Jesus does, that he lays his life down. The last few years, if you've ever been here on uh, Good Friday at different times, we've done it several different times. There's a crucifixion narrative uh, that a pastor, uh, I believe from Florida, wrote. And it's really well done of just the way he kind of lays out in story form what happens on Good Friday as Jesus lays his life down. And there's one part in particular where he talks about Jesus having the power to stop all of it. And he says it this way. He says, The word of the power that holds the centurion in existence, the power that causes the hammer to be, he is speaking it all into being. The soldiers, the priests, the thieves, the friends, the mothers, the brothers, the mob, the wooden beam, the spikes, the thorns, the ground beneath him, and the dark clouds gathering above. If he ceases to speak, they will all cease to be. But he wills that they remain, so the soldiers live on and the hammers come crashing down. That's the picture here. The one who holds it all into existence allows himself to be nailed to the cross. And it tells us it's the humility of our Savior. That he loves his creation and he loves God's glory so much that he is willingly going to come and take our place and do that for us. It's a beautiful picture of the humility of our Savior and his love for his creation that he would do that. 
And so the picture or the question becomes, you see that here, the God of the universe that willfully comes and serves and lays his life down. And so the second thing I want to consider is how is that to affect us? What does he tell us here? And so look at verse two. Complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so he says something absolutely uh, enormous here. So huge. There's so many colossal truths in this short passage that it's hard for us to get our head around all that he's saying. But he tells you right here that you have this mind in verse 5 among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have this mind and it's yours in Jesus. And so I want you to think about what we talked about last week. If you were here, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and we talked about all that Jesus has done for us by coming to lay his life down. And in 2 Corinthians 5, we talked about this picture that he's dealt with our sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He willfully took on our sin in his person and in his self that we could be the righteousness of God in him. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, and we looked at that last week. But we also talked about in that passage how not only did he take our sin, not only did he give us his righteousness, he gave us the very ability to believe. He purchased our ability to believe in laying his life down. And we talked about all of those different areas and what he's done for us. But then when we get to this passage, it tells us that that's not all that he's done. There's more to it than even that. He's now given us the Holy Spirit who now lives in us and with us because of what Jesus has done, ever present, uniting us with Christ. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I'm sending the helper that will be with you always. The Holy Spirit dwelling in your life that unites us with Christ. And so that picture of what he says here, that you now have this mind in you, the mind of Christ, is not just some kind of uh, flowery idea. This is a reality of who you now are in Jesus with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's yours. He says you now have this in fullness because of what Jesus has done for you. And so we, we wrestle with the idea and what that looks like. Sometimes we say we're being conformed to the image of Christ, and that gets it part of it. It's a good way to say it. This is now who we are in Christ. He has counted his righteousness to us, and we're now beginning to live out what that looks like as he recreates and remakes us. The fullness of that will come in Jesus' second coming. Or sometimes I've heard it say we're becoming who we are in Jesus. This is who you now are in Christ, and now we're seeking to live that out day to day. Edmund Clowney said it this way, Christians live in a future that is already present, not just in expectation, but in realization, Christ's presence in the spirit. What a beautiful, glorious truth. This is not just some ethereal idea, have the mind of Christ. He says, this is now who you are in Jesus. And so he tells us what it should look like. 
when the Holy Spirit enters in and begins to remake us and regenerate us, there's a profound change that comes. Now, it doesn't all come at once. Our flesh, our sinfulness that clings so closely that we looked at in Hebrews is still there and very real. There's all these analogies of going to war with our flesh and continuing to give over and follow Christ in all those ways. But he says you now have the mind of Christ. And with that comes a deep humility that is the humility of our Savior. That he lays out so beautifully here for us. That's who Jesus is. You see this picture of his humility and now you have this mind. And so all that we are and all that we will ever be, our entire being is owed to Christ and what he's done for us. He's redeemed us. And so that should strike in us a deep, deep humility. All that you have is a gift from Jesus. All of it. That should profoundly begin to change us. And so what does that look like? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the picture of what it should look like. And so you can read that and you can go, do not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right? The mind of Christ, we're not seeking to count equality. We are not. Jesus humbled himself in that way. That is now the mind that we have in Christ. And you can say, well, I never do that. I'm not seeking to be God. I'm, not try- I'm obviously not God. I obviously do not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But I would say that's not true. I would say every single one of us does just about every single day. Think about the way we define sin when we talk about sin. We're ignoring God or we're rebelling against God. What we're really saying is, God, you've told me this, but I think I know better. That's counting ourselves equal with God. I am your equal. You have told me this and I'm going to weigh what you've said. and I'm going to say, no, thanks. I'll go ahead and do it my own way. That is not the mind of Christ, but that's often how we operate. We count ourselves equal with God. And when we do that, the magnitude of the arrogance, the creator God that holds us in existence, that humbled himself to the point of even death, that we can be restored to him, and we're going to say to him, no, I think I got this. We do count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and we do it all the time. And that's not the picture that's here the magnitude, the picture of of being and having the mind of Christ. And so that picture that we see, that he tells us we should count others more significant. We should not try to count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We should put others first and we should love them. We We should operate the way Christ has loved us, which Peter tells us that. It's exactly the picture that we begin to get at. And so when we start to think about doing that, oftentimes we don't. We try to grab hold of equality with God. We do it ourselves, and when we do, we make ourselves the center. We make it all about us and our performance 
and what we do and what people think of me. And the weight of that will crush us because we were never meant to be the center. That will always end poorly. And he says, so have this mind among yourselves. Count others more significant as yourself. Do you understand what it's saying? Love God and love people. It's the same thing Jesus said over and over. How do you summarize all the commandments? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Count others more significant than yourself. It's saying the same thing. Put others first. There's a very practical side to that, too, when that works. When you actually love and care for people so much that you put them first and get along better with everybody. There's a practical side to this. God actually knows what he's talking about when we begin to live and operate that way. But when we don't, it causes all kinds of problems. Right? When we put ourselves at the center, we're constantly seeking to prove ourselves. We're constantly having to be right we're constantly having to, to make ourselves, build ourselves up or put other people down so that we look better because we've made ourselves the center. But when we see that God is the center and what he's done for us in Jesus holds all things together, it frees us from all that mess. We don't have to be the center. We don't have to do that. We don't have to insist on being right or trying to make ourselves look better. When we embrace the mind of Christ, when we see our identity is secure and kept for us in Jesus, it frees us from all those things. I don't have to always be right. Although I often do pull that back. I just confess, I can so easily do that. I have to be right. He says, no, you don't. He's got it all. Count others more important than yourself. And the picture that's there, embrace the mind of Christ and what does it do for you? You see that you're secure in your life and your identity and all your work and all that you do and all that you will ever do is complete and secure in Jesus. And it frees you to love other people and put them first. We are so sorely missing this in our culture. We desperately need believers to love people the way Jesus has loved us. And the picture that it would show. It doesn't mean you don't ever disagree with people. It doesn't mean you don't stand up for truth. But what it does is you do so with great humility. Loving people and caring for them and meeting them where they are. And the only way this can happen is when you see that all that you are, all that you have, All that you ever will be, your entire future, is secure and complete in Jesus. I don't have to control everything because he's got it. Isn't that wonderful good news? I read that over and over this week and said, thank you, God. I'm so glad it's not on me. It would be such a mess if it was. And that's what happens when I try to take it back. It is a mess. Absolutely a mess. But thankfully, he has all of it. And so when we see that we've been purchased, that our life, all of it is his, we can just offer it back continually. So I'm going to end here this morning. I've told this story before. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you haven't. But I think this idea that everything that we are is purchased by Jesus, his humility of laying all down for us, counting us more significant 
that he would lay his life down radically changes us. I heard this story years ago, and I was looking for it this week. I can't remember the guy who tells the story, but it's of a man in a Nazi Germany concentration camp. And he tells the story that they come back from a work detail one day, and there's about 30 guys that have been working, and one of the shovels is missing. And the guard starts to scream at the men in the concentration camp. Where is the shovel and who took it and what happened to it? And he lines them all up in a row and no one answers. No one knows. And so he goes down to the end of the row and he pulls out his gun and he puts it to the first guy's head. And he says, if you don't tell me now, I'm going to start going down the line shooting each one of you. And so everyone's silent and he's about to pull the trigger on this man who tells the story. One of the guys about two-thirds of the way steps out and he says, I took it. I'm the one that took the shovel. And so the guard takes his gun and he lowers it and he goes over and he beats the man to death in front of everyone. Brutally murders him in front of all of them. And then he tells them to clean it up and storms off. And they do and they go back and they put their things together. And as they're going through, they go and they look, uh, they take the inventory again and they find out that the shovel is actually not missing. Somebody just miscounted. And so this man, in humility, said, I will count myself less than the rest, and I will lay my life down. And so the man who tells the story said, I got up every day for the rest of my life deciding that I had to live it to the fullest because this man gave his life for me. The only way I have breath is because of what he's done for me. It's the perfect picture of Jesus and his humility and counting us more significant than him that he would do that. And so we have an opportunity for this breath, this time, the few years that God gives you to live for his glory. And what that looks like is counting others more significant than yourself. Loving people in the way that Jesus has loved you. We get that opportunity each day. And it's impossible in our own strength. It has to be the mind of Christ, willfully walking, letting the Holy Spirit lead and guide us and who Christ is and what he's done. It's the only way it will ever work. But when it does, the glory that will be shown for God's name through what Jesus has done. Let us, please, please, let that be what we're celebrating at Christmas. That we get the opportunity to count others more significant because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious truth of your word, of this passage, of what you have done for us, your great humility, uh, just the magnitude of your love for us, that you would willingly lay your life down on our behalf, that you would give us your righteousness, that you would take our sin, that you continue to walk and lead and guide us through the power of of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that you've united us with you. We can just simply say thank you. We can't even begin to fathom the magnitude of what you've done, but we thank you for it. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.